I date all the eighth grade boys for the same reason. Welcome back to Weird for Lunch, the show where near, far, wherever you are, we've got the snackable meanings behind your favorite Boo. songs. I'm your host, journalist Lindsay Tucker. Why aren't you doing it? Oh, that was my cue. What is wrong with you? So listeners, Lindsay, <laughs> Lindsay talked to me like a five-year-old before we went on and was like... I'm your host. When I say I'm your host, journalist Lindsay Tucker, you say your name. Oh my God. I can't believe you're doing this. Why? I'm the idiot. Um, <laughs> I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm a writer, director, musician, and co-host of this podcast. I just wanted to let you know that I wouldn't be introducing you this well, week. That I left it. you some space just in case you wanted to, in case you changed your mind. <laughs> how are you doing what is this show about you said snackable meanings behind some of your favorite songs what does that even mean oh here we go again i think i think that the the the, it, the show <laughs> deserves more okay well fucking give it to us then. so we take a deep dive into some of the fam- most famous songs from music history their cultural implications their secret meanings etc 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 usually there's a thing that's mind blowing every time we're like ah let's let's do a fun quick one it turns out to be oh this is going to be three parts about you know <laughs> it starts with the transatlantic slave trade and then goes to space and then <laughs> um so yeah today we are going to be talking about the most annoying Celine Dion song <laughs> which is absolutely not true um my heart will go on. Which more annoying? I don't know. There were nights when the wind was so cruel. That song is great. Celine, there are some, <laughs> there are some Celine Dion songs that are not that don't slap as hard as either of those two. Don't put this in. No, it's going in. Um, so the, so the song is called "My Heart Will Go On." If you don't know it right now, you'll know it as the song from Titanic, Oscar-winning, Grammy-winning. Stop stealing my show. I well, we're setting up. <laughs> How was your week, Lindsay? Um, it was all right. I got a new job, which has been exciting and very busy. Mm. And um, I'm excited to do this because I fucking love Titanic. Yeah. So, I, listeners, I made the mistake. This was kind of my idea, and I made the mistake of being like, Lindsay, do you want to talk about Titanic? And now we're here. So we're letting you know right now that this is going to be a two-part episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's dive right in. Let's dive right in. Um, What's your experience with the song, Aviv? Oh, my experience with the song. So I'm 35. Titanic came out when I was 12. And so my experience with the song is is what most kind of adolescent boys experience of the song was, which I first heard it in Titanic. 
and then I heard it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever after that for like two years straight. There wasn't a day where I didn't hear it um, <laughs> and pretended or actually didn't like it. Right. Uh, but I was like, because it was like very boys versus girls. I was like, "Ugh, this song is horrible. I like whatever green day. And so, um, but I distinctly remember hearing it at the at the roller skating rink a lot. Were the you holding anyone's palace. hand? I did not hold anyone's hand at the roller rink. Aww. Yeah. Sad, st- sad day for me. Oh, I would have held your hand. Thank you. Okay. So. There were nights when the <laughs> wind was so cold. So anyway. good. Um, there was a time when I performed that at there was my friend, a time when I <laughs> my friend Petty's bachelorette party, and then because it was so good, I got a ribbon that said "best chest." Okay, so let's take a couple steps back. <laughs> well, there was no best Celine Dion fucking performance award. But but but, but <laughs> which song did you perform? It's all coming back to me now. Yeah. I was once at a at a karaoke birthday party and th- and there was a double Dion. It was it was Titan it was My Heart Will Go On and then this. And both of those songs are fucking long as hell. Yeah. It was so yeah. D- Celine always brings down the house. I'm going to tell you about my experience with the song now. Of course you are. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I went to see Titanic when I was in seventh grade and I was with my friend Andrea and we had just gotten like kind of popular because we weren't, but she um, started dating this guy that was in eighth grade and he was cool. And oh so, yeah. So like people wanted to talk to us. I agree. I date all the eighth grade boys for the same reason. <laughs> Fuck. That's going to be the beginning of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> So I went to movies with these guys and Andrea and I didn't like it. It was really long and You it didn't was, like Titanic? Will you let me finish? But 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 from the things I know about you This doesn't make sense. Does this it? doesn't make sense at all. From what I know about you, you really love Titanic. So what how is it possible that you I don't know. Maybe it was the company that I was in. You know, it was like rowdy. Nobody was sitting still. Like the boys obviously didn't like it. I was sitting next to my friend Alyssa too, because it wasn't just me and Andrea. Our other friend Alyssa came. And I remember like us looking at each other and being like, like, we don't really like this. Like it's really just long. And so the next, so I go home and then the next day I'm at my dad's house and my dad's like, so like, how, what did you think of Titanic? And I'm like, uh, I don't really like it. It's just <laughs> like boring. And then a few hours later, or maybe five minutes later, I don't really know. The vi- music video comes on for my heart will go on. Yeah. Okay. Which we're about to watch. And I oh, was great. like, like my, my heartstrings were like ignited and I was so awake. Just the length. You saw something <laughs> shorter and you're like, so I'm like, I feel like I have to see it again. And I, then I remember telling my dad, like, I can't stop thinking about Titanic. Like, I think I have to see it again mm-hmm. because I thought I didn't like it, but I cannot stop thinking about it. So I'm just going to go see it again. So I did. You and have also notoriously bad taste in movies. Excuse me. All right. Moving on. Let's watch the music video. Titanic. 
Titanic was called the ship of dreams. Oh my god. It was. It really was. She was a babe. Who? Celine. Celine? Yes. Oh yeah. She was only like twenty something when she made this. Yeah, but when I was twelve, I was like, that's an old person. <laughs> yeah. So this is just a lot of lingering looks from From Leo and Kate at each other. I just want to watch Titanic. It's too long and boring. I 
kissing. Kissing. Ugh, gross. Kissing. This is a kissing book. <laughs> okay. So that song rules. <laughs> it does. It's a good song. Why weren't we doing this before? I don't know. Why didn't we think of this before? This was my idea. So you're welcome. Was it? Yeah. All right. So now yeah. that you've seen the music video, what do you think the song is about? Uh, someone's heart going on. <laughs> Be serious. I'm I'm kind of serious, right? Like like it's about a love that is separated by distance and and whatnot, and every like like a, a love that is lost, but not love is never really lost because love is still in my heart. And my heart will go on. The end. What do you think it's about? <laughs> Those things. <laughs> yeah like we'll stay forever this way because you're dead so you're always going to be 20 to me yeah right <laughs> i don't know okay so my heart will go on was written for the movie titanic obviously mm -hmm. james horner wrote the music and scored the film uh, horner died in a 2015 plane crash when he was 61 Jesus. but while we were growing up he was a popular composer who wrote the scores for tons of beloved films including braveheart field of dreams apollo 13 avatar and i would be no one if i didn't include land before time hell yeah love me some land there might time. be another another braveheart connection later on in the show oh i can't wait yeah so the lyrics to my heart will go on were written by will jennings mm -hmm. in an interview with song facts jennings said james horner who i'd worked with on other films asked me to come to his house and consider writing something for titanic James told me the story of the script and then played me the theme he'd written for the film. The character Rose, looking back over all those years, caught my imagination, and I connected her with a 100-plus-year-old woman, still working, still vital, Beatrice Wood, who I had met a few years before in Ojai, California, an hour or so north of where I lived, wait, in wait, Westlake wait, 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 Village. Wait, 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 <laughs> so, wait. I'm sorry. One more time, please. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> i so like okay because in the quote that you were reading to me i was like oh he like connected with this like imaginary hundred year old woman whose heart is going on and she's the she's the 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 w who this is the you know whatever and you're saying <laughs> he's like oh i literally made the connection to this literal hundred year old woman that i know in ojai Yes, Beatrice Wood. Okay. <laughs> Who I'd met a few years before in Ojai, an hour or so north of where I lived in Westlake Village. Wood had been an artist in New York before World War I and had lived and worked in France and wound up in California and finally in Ojai, working as a fine arts potter. My wife and I happened to be in Ojai when the premiere of a film called Mama of Dada, a documentary about Wood's life, was shown and we went to see it. And Miss Wood herself showed up very much alive and lively, 100 year olds plus, and talked about the film before it was shown, and then received all of the people at the premiere at a hotel across the street from the theater where the film was shown. When she shook my hand, I had such a feeling of vitality and life force. It was like nothing in my life before or since. Okay. <laughs> Do you have anything you need to unpack before I continue? No, he's like literally just talking about it, uh, an old lady that he knows, which is like dope. Great. 
when James told me the script, I focused on Rose and thought of Beatrice Wood, who was old enough to have been Rose. And I still had the feeling I had of the life force I felt when I touched Beatrice Wood's hand. And it was from this feeling that I wrote the lyrics for My Heart Will Go On. He's just, so this song is about being thirsty for a hundred-year-old lady. I touched her I hand. Told and I told you it took a turn. <laughs> this this is starting with a turn. Well, this I was, like I wasn't those... starting with this, but I found this, and then it took a turn. <laughs> this, this is like one of those roller coasters that starts from a full stop, mm-hmm. like the rock and roller coaster at Disneyland. And it just shoots you, launches off. you. Yeah, yeah. This that's what this episode is. Okay, so, Aviv, who mm-hmm. is Beatrice Wood? I don't fucking know. Is She better not be the woman that plays Rose. <laughs> oh, old Rose. Gloria no, I don't Stewart. Know, I, I don't know who Beatrice Wood, Wood is. Okay, so that soundbite that I read from Jennings is very perplexing to me because mm-hmm. it makes it sound like he came up with the concept of relating Rose to Beatrice Wood. When, in fact, it's well documented that James Cameron used Wood at least as a partial inspiration for Rose's character. Okay. So, like, there's, like, a co-evolution situation, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Great. So, I'm going to read from the New York Times Magazine. This is a 1999 piece called The Lives They Lived, Beatrice Wood, a Titanic Figure of the Avant-Garde. Okay. The time is summer, 1917. The place, Coney Island. Beatrice Wood is seated on a fake ox while behind her, in an ox cart, against a painted backdrop, sit Marcel Duchamp and Francis Picabia. Excuse me? <laughs> I mean, I, I got the Marcel Duchamp one. Yeah, right, Marcel, Marcel Duchamp who's, you got. Who's this other guy? Picabia? Francis Picabia. Okay. Picabia? Picabia. Picabia, probably. Yeah. Picabia. In an ox cart against a painted backdrop sit Marcel Duchamp and Francis Picabia. They have come from the roller coaster. With Marcel's arm around me, Wood recalled years later, I would have gone on any ride into hell with the same heroic abandon as a Japanese lover standing on the rim of a volcano ready to take a suicide leap. Wow. In the photograph, she looks more queasy than lovestruck, clutching her hat as if afraid it might blow off. Wood, who died this year, a few days after her 105th birthday, flirtatious to the end, became a potter of luminescent talent, having taken up ceramics in her 40s when she failed to find a teapot to match some plates she had bought in Holland. Her fame, which mostly came later in life, stemmed from a combination of her art, her longevity, and her sheer verve. When she was born, Cezanne was still a little-known painter and Grover Cleveland was president. When she died, she was, in a sense, just coming into her own, having had a full-scale museum retrospective in New York City a year earlier and having been named a living treasure by the governor of California a couple years before that. Through a friend, she'd lately been introduced to a film director who decided to base a character in a new movie on her. The director was James Cameron. The character was Rose in Titanic. Oh my god. Born into a rich, stuffy family in San Francisco, reared on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, sent to a French convent school, she spent most of her long life running away from what she was supposed to have become, and into the fickle arms of whimsy, and the arms of various men, exemplifying American bohemianism in its sweetest, purest form. Jesus. Sex became her favorite topic, (laughs) with which she loved to scandalize, read Charm, her many interviewers. If a man says he loves me, I fall into his lap like a ripe grape, became one of her stock remarks, along with her equation that over the course of her life, she had loved seven men she did not marry and married two she did not love. Wow. 
A disciple of the Indian philosopher Krishnamurti, she was, a fam- she was famous for dressing in bright saris, rings on her toes, her toenails painted scarlet, walking barefoot around her house in Ojai, which became a tourist destination. She kept copies of her autobiography, I Shock Myself, on a small table to sell to visitors. She befriended Brancusi, danced for Nijinsky, made costumes for Isadora Duncan, and shared a genealogist. No, a gynecologist. Um, what? <laughs> and shared a gynecologist with Edna St. Vincent Millay. Outraging her parents, she studied painting at the Liberal Academy Julian and acting at the Comédie Française in Paris, then hooked up with a French repertory theater group in New York, as a result of which, in 1916, she met the vanguard composer Edgard Barres. So, so she sounds like the the woman from the Taylor Swift story, right? She's a she's this bohemian. She like loves life, loves love, loves painting and dressing fun, and everyone else can go fuck themselves. Yeah, great. I love this. Um, here's a quote from her: "I left home, a luxurious home, with fifteen dollars to be free." She told journalist Sandip Roy. And I went through a few years understanding the word poverty, but I was free, and freedom means a great deal to me. So the following pass is a passage that Roy wrote for the Indian news and media website First Post. She had fled from an Oso Prapa. Prapa? That's how he wrote it. P-R-O-P-A-H, but it's proper. Oso Prapa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blue-blooded family in New York's Upper East Side, where she had a, de- a debutante ball. She had ended up in Paris in the middle of a life that was an artist's dream with a mother's nightmare. Think Rose's mother in the Titanic. Would have oh, seen- here we go. <laughs> Wood had seen Monet painting in his garden. She was an extra in a play with Sarah Bernhardt. She tie-dyed costumes for Isadora Duncan and learned folk dances from Anna Pavlova's choreographer. Okay, so um, she so she literally was a mama of Dada. But she said, I am not the mama of Dada. I was on the sidelines in love with two of the men. All these people are dead. And here I am getting the publicity. Who, what men were, was she in love with? Man Ray and... Henry Pierre Roche and Marcel Duchamp. They were two, both were her lovers. The three of them organized the Society of Independent Artists and published The Blind Man, an important Dada journal, which cool. later caused Wood to be tagged the mama of Dada. Gotcha. We're going to watch this opening clip of Mama of Dada real quick. This is the documentary about Wood. Yeah, that Jennings saw and met her. What are you seeing? It's an old lady walking in the woods, (laughs) much like Rose at the end of Titanic. (laughs) Does any of that remind you of Titanic? Yeah, the she's like walking in the woods. We see her hands. We see her eyeballs. It's all very Titanic-y. She's making pottery. Is does Rose make pottery in Titanic? Yeah. No, she doesn't. Remember when I moved in you? I mean, when we first met Rose on the Titanic? She was not making pottery. Yes, she was. There is no pottery wheels on the Titanic. Oh. 
Oh, not on the Titanic. Old Rose is making pottery. I said, remember when we first met Rose? I thought we met, I thought you were talking about young Rose with the hat. So she's making this pottery and looking at her hands and then. Then she gets the call. No, she's watching TV. Right. And she sees Bill Paxton, rest in peace, talking about the heart of the ocean. And, and then right. she's like, oh, it is me, dear. Wasn't yeah, I a yeah, dish? Yeah. You have my picture. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I would okay. like to see okay. my drawing. Okay. So you've been proved wrong again. Cameron interviewed Wood when she was around 101, which is the same age as Rose, played by Gloria Stewart, is when she goes back to Titanic and has an orgasm dropping a rock into the ocean. <laughs> when Titanic came out, Beatrice Wood was 104, and she could not really get into her studio to work anymore, let alone go to a movie premiere. So James Cameron and Gloria Stewart brought her the video. So they really, really, they're like, this is you, Beatrice. <laughs> Uh, she refused to watch it. Why? Wasn't Dada enough for her? She said it was too late in life for her to be sad. Oh, sad. So this is how I knew that Beatrice Wood was probably my soulmate. I don't think any Anglo-Saxon man should ever dance the tango. I don't think he knows what it's about. But an Argentina, it is just the most dreamy experience you can have. Besides laying on a mattress, they hold you. Besides laying on a mattress, that's my girl. One person in this wonderful sense. Love me some bed. Okay, so she just rules and is like, "Fuck white men, they they can't tango." Yeah, and bed rules, and and being asleep rules. Yeah. Titanic was released on December nineteenth, nineteen ninety seven. And My Heart Will Go On debuted at number one two months later on the Billboard Hot 100 on February 28th, 1998, kicking off the Titanic soundtrack's 16-week run atop the Billboard 200. Jesus. My Heart Will Go On also appeared on Celine Dion's late 1997 album, Let's Talk About Love, and together, the two albums sold more than 60 million copies, according to Sony Music. 60 million? Yep. Holy shit. And the Titanic soundtrack is one of only seven soundtracks to be certified diamond by the Recording Industry Association of America. One of how many? Seven. Seven to be certified diamond. Diamond is 10 million sales. I was just going to ask you what that means. Diamond is 10 million sales. I'm trying to think of what the other ones might be. So according to Mental Floss. Love Mental Floss. The best-selling soundtracks of all time. Oh, very stupid. Ready? Mm-hmm. Purple Rain. Purple Rain. The Bodyguard. And I. Saturday Night Fever. Hmm. I don't got one for that. <laughs> Forest Forest Gump. Ooh. Awkward. You don't know one for Saturday Night Fever? That's Staying Alive. Ah, 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 staying Alive. Forest Gump, Dirty Dancing. You never close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and number six is Titanic. And the seventh, the last diamond one, is The Lion King. Ooh. Yeah. And this was published December of 2018. So I don't think any soundtrack has beaten it since. Also, record sales definitely aren't what they used to be. So I'd, I think that that might be untouchable for a while. But the number one is The Bodyguard. Ah. 
That's not from the bodyguard. Well, I didn't do one for the Lion King, so in case you needed one. (laughs) Great. Yes. All right. Originally, Cameron didn't want to end the movie with a pop song. Randy Gersten, music supervisor of Titanic, told Billboard, We had done a record deal with Sony to do the soundtrack, just the Horner score. And I think the label imagined that they would get an end title song into the film. Jim, Cameron, didn't want to end the film with a pop song. His favorite bands were Ministry and Metallica. Hell yeah. Cameron reportedly said, would you put a song at the end of Schindler's List? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So so I think we should state early that James Cameron, while an, an incredible director, has a tendency to compare himself and his films to things like that. Okay, would you put a pop song at the end of Schindler's List? Great. Yeah. Okay, go on. Okay, so Glenn Brunman, Brunman, whatevs, who was then the executive VP of Sony Music Soundtracks, told Billboard, We made the deal for the album in December 1996. We knew we were buying the rights to a score album only. No song, no Celine. We paid 800000 No one had even come close to paying that. Everybody was calling the movie Cameron's Folly. We'll come back to that. Put a pin in that. Oh, yes, we will. <laughs> so according to executive producer John Landau, Horner wrote My Heart Will Go On unbeknownst to everyone. He said, Horner was a romantic about life, you know? That's and the whole quote. <laughs> that's the whole quote. <laughs> I don't know. James Horner. <laughs> romantic. It was, it was almost the song for Apollo 13. <laughs> according to Vogue, when it came to the end of the film, Horner wanted it to feel timeless. He said, you get to the end of the credits and what you usually hear is a reprise, a suite of old themes. And I felt the last thing I want is a reprise. I want to do something different, something elegant, tasteful and contemporary. This happens kind of all the time is we will have pop songs specifically written for the end credits of a movie. Same with um, this used to be my playground and a league of their own. Oh, but also like 007 or whatever. Those are for the beginning. Yeah. Those are like the beginning beginning themes. This is like, um, think about like Will Smith, right? We mentioned Men in Black earlier, though that might get cut out of the podcast. Um, That Men in Black song was specific. It doesn't have, it's nowhere in the movie. It's just over the end credits. Yeah. 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 Comes the Men in Black. Galaxy Defenders. (laughs) Okay. So. Enter Celine Dion. Finally. (laughs) Celine Dion had at one point sang Dreams to Dream, which was the single from Universal Cartoon Studios' 1991 animated film Five Goes West, which was (gasps) the sequel to 1986's An American Tale. So that was produced by Steven Spielberg and scored by Horner. Right. And she wasn't that big of a star at the time. So they didn't use her. And they went back to Linda Ronstadt, who had sang somewhere out there for An American mm-hmm. Tale. Can I tell you, I had the somewhere out there tape with Linda Ronstadt and like Luther Vandross singing to each other or whatever. And you listen to it every night while you're falling asleep? No, I listened to it in the living room and would spin my arms. So I would like spin in circles until my arms like were like helicopter. Fell off? Close enough. <laughs> cute so (laughs) okay so celine's breakout into pop stardom came in 1992 do you know why 1992 was she on another soundtrack Mm -hmm. what was a big 92 movie 92 was a not a good year for movies i'll give you a hint 
give me a hint. There goes the baker with his tray like always. Oh, did she sing, did she sing Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like I am of I'm in Camp Lansbury for the Beauty and the Beast song. Did she mm-hmm. she sang like Tale as old as time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I definitely when I think of it hear the Angela Lansbury version from the movie itself. Mhm. I agree. Right. But she sang it. So she did that on the soundtrack or Yeah, whatever. and that's how she got fame, miss. Fame is. I made that bitch famous. Did she also have sex with Kanye? <laughs> okay, so she was on the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack, and this broke her in terms of like a, a level of fame that she yeah. had seen before. When was It's All Coming Back to Me now? It's all coming back. I don't know. I forget. What was that? Because that's like, that to me is like, pinnacle i think that was right before titanic i think you're probably right look it up 96 so yeah right before titanic yeah what a what a banger yeah okay so uh celine's breakout into pop started in canyon 92 and she did the themes for beauty for disney's beauty and the beast but Dion's rendition of Dreams to Dream always stuck with Horner. And when he wrote My Heart Will Go On, Dion was his first choice for vocalist. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I understand why she'd be like kind of anybody's first choice for vocalist, really. I really wanted to find her like demo of Dreams to Dream, but I couldn't. Um, should I do a quick Google? Yeah, because I didn't try that. I just like licked my finger and pointed it towards the wind. And I thought like maybe I would find the song that way. Well, I found it, but I'm not going to send it. <laughs> you did? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but when My Heart Will Go On was presented to Celine, she hates it. Great. <laughs> she told Just mu- Much like you did with Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Like, snooze. <laughs> Boring. What else you got? <laughs> she told Billboard, I was in a suite with a piano at Caesar's Palace. Horner started to play the song. With all the respect that I have for James, poor him. This guy is looking above us right now. He is not the greatest singer. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was making. I would have liked it, but James sucked. <laughs> I was making this sign like this is not possible. Renee, Dion's late husband, stopped mm. him. James, 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 listen to me. You're not going. You're not doing justice to the song right now. I'm going to make a deal with you. Let's have Celine make a demo. I wanted to choke my husband because I didn't want to do it. I just came out of Because You Loved Me. And then Beauty and the Beast was like huge. Oh, Because You Love Me. What another amazing Celine song. (laughs) And then Beauty and the Beast was like huge. Why do we need to break our nose? And and Renee was also her producer, manager. I know that he had something to do with her business as well. It wasn't just like my husband has made this deal on my (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, he definitely did. I feel like, because remember it was kind of scandalous, like Celine's Mm -hmm, so young and she's like marrying her old manager or something. Yeah, I think think he was her manager. But yeah, okay. So she's going to cut a demo. She is doing it against her will almost. Yeah, and on the day she was like pissed. So she said, Great. "I don't feel good. I have belly pains. My girly days are starting to happen." So I assume girly she's days. menstruating. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't <laughs> be out at sea. My girly days. So she says she had black coffee with sugar that day, which she never had on studio days because it sped up her vibrato. 
but she got to New York okay. and had a coffee and Horner explained to her what the movie was about. This there's this weird thing with like people at the peak of their physical at the at the peak of their whatever they do, right? So she is the best person at at in the world at what she does, which is sing a Celine Dion song. And she's like, oh, well, if I have black coffee with sugar, my vibrato is actually two beats per minute faster. And so we can't do it. Deals Meanwhile, off. every every uh, record I've ever made, I have like 104 <laughs> fever fucking screaming vocals into my into my car. Just sweating sweating a lot yeah <laughs> just profusely sweating yeah well, how do you do it <laughs> celine was i guarantee sweating her her lady parts off her early <laughs> days off there was a lot of moisture gross go on <laughs> um okay stop it menstruation isn't gross no i wasn't the, the moisture is the gross thing <laughs> So Horner says to her, just think about it and do it. And I'm like, this is Celine talking. And I'm like, all right, thanks a lot. (laughs) So she lays down the demo in one take and everyone's crying. And it's Horner. It's her husband, Renee. It's Polly Anthony, who is then the president of Epic Records. And Tommy Mottola, who was then the head of Sony Music Entertainment. Yeah. He was like a huge hit maker. Yeah. Horner allegedly carried around the cassette for weeks, waiting for the right moment when he thought that Cameron would be in the right mood to be receptive to the song. Amazing. And and we're going to hear a lot about uh, why that may have been necessary <laughs> in terms of James Cameron's personality. Yeah. But eventually he does. He gives it to Cameron and Cameron listens to it a bunch of times and he's thinking it's too sentimental. It's mm-hmm. too anachronistic compared to the rest of the score, which was largely influenced by Irish folk music. So do we know if the whistle because the, the flute to me ties everything together, right? That like the Irish, the Irish wooden flute or whatever. Mm-hmm. Was that do we think in the demo? I don't think probably just like a piano. Yeah. Because, so the the original song was called The Portrait, and it's when Jack's drawing Rose. Mm-hmm. And that, that's when he first wrote My Heart Will Go On, the music to and, it. And that is in that scene mm-hmm. without lyrics. Yeah. Right? It's the, and it's, it's the, piano. The pre-motif, yeah. Yeah. Light motif. And Cameron thought he'd likely be criticized for going commercial at the end of the movie. But he also wanted to appease the anxious studio executives and understood that a hit song from his film could be a positive factor in guaranteeing its completion. Yes. So why is Cameron worried about execs and his film's completion? Costs were spiraling out of control. The filming of Titanic ran $105 million over budget and experienced costly delays and countless mishaps. And as we had said earlier, everyone's calling it Cameron's folly. Can you repeat that? $105 million over, budget. over budget. So it wasn't that they gave him 80 and it went up to 105 No. He went 105 over. Over. Yeah. And how many millions, how many millions do you think like Leo and Kate got? How many millions of dollars do I think Leo and Kate got? Out of all of these millions that they... This is a clearly a trick question. So, so... They got probably less than a million each because neither of them were huge stars. Leo was kind of a star because he did Romeo and Juliet. And so I'm assuming he got paid a little bit more than Kate did. 
Um, and there's like some conflicting reports about like how badly Kate wanted the role. So my guess is that she made about a half million and he made about three quarters of a million. Wrong. Wrong. Leo made two million and Kate oh. made less than one. That sounds about right. I mean, not not like in terms of justice in the yeah. world, but yeah. but that sounds like what they would pay actors of that level at that time. Well, she'd done Pride and Prejudice already, right? Yeah, but Pride and Prejudice didn't have teen teenagers lining up around the block to see it, right? She was kind of a known quantity, but not like Romeo plus Juliet. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. She had also done uh, Heavenly Creatures, which is a movie I actually really love, but it's very weird. Mm, I haven't watched it. It's, it's a Peter Jackson movie where she and uh, Melanie Linsky play like maybe lesbians who devolve into this fantasy world where they like have sex with statues. Ooh. It's super, super Do they have weird. Big dicks? But it's like, oh, they're the lesbians. Sta- I don't think you see the statues' <laughs> dicks. I'm sorry. I know that you're out, but. <laughs> You don't see the big stone penises. <laughs> big dicks or I'm out. <laughs> That's why you didn't like Titanic. <laughs> it wasn't enough massive dong. <sighs> yeah. Uh, listeners, I don't know if you could tell, but for whatever reason, the zoom that Lindsay and I are on just like zoomed into her eye. <laughs> and then there was like a transition to 1912. And my eye got really younger. Old. Yeah, <laughs> lost, lost in a memory. It's been 84 years. Um, the film critic for the Sunday Times wrote that Cameron's overweening pride has come close to capsizing the project, which he labeled mm. a hackneyed, completely derivative copy of old Hollywood romances. He, I mean, yep. So yeah, so uh, delay after delay is happening. And Aviv, um, what happens when you're delayed on location when you're supposed to be making a movie? Uh, you waste <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah. And you get very depressed. Yeah. Uh, I, I know a thing or two about getting delayed on location. You're bleeding money every day because for something like this, you are keeping actors uh, something called on avail, quote, on avail, which means that they can't leave and go do anything else. So you have to pay them. Mm-hmm. even if they're not working and you know they shot titanic in mexico portions of it right so like they're not people aren't staying at their houses so they have to put them up they have to give them food and lodging and, and so, canada too right yeah i mean anywhere that's not i'm saying part of it was filmed mile, in canada yeah yeah but but the, no, even if they went to Palm Springs, they would have had to put people up. I think that the rule is 30 miles. Ah, okay. So if, if you have to travel more than 30 miles, they have to like put you up somewhere. And so, yeah, so they're, they're hemorrhaging money for several reasons, including the fact that they are just like del- doing delay after delay after delay. Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing a bit of a handoff because this is kind of my area of specialty, which is like, the behind the scenes of film production as well as like i'm really fascinated with like film disasters like things that are going super 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 wrong and so um i pulled a couple of quotes and a a little um article from vanity fair okay so this is kind of a complicated story because the movie was so expensive but 
um, there are a couple players involved. Number one is Sherry Lansing. Sherry Lansing was the head of Paramount Pictures in 96. Mm-hmm. And she she was bad looking bitch. For, She's a bad bitch. <laughs> and she was looking for stuff that we movies we don't make anymore. She wanted a drama, like a, a high emotion drama that like didn't cost too much. We don't make movies like that anymore. Those are all on TV. But in 1996, that wasn't really a thing. And we don't make movies like that anymore. What do you call we, Netflix? Well, so but Netflix isn't movies. It's TV. But it's movies. But we don't release them theatrically. Gotcha. So, so a theatrical release is really is really difficult because it takes a lot of money to advertise. Mm-hmm. So, whenever a general rule of thumb is whatever money it takes to make the movie. In Titanic's case, it was over two hundred million dollars. They also need to spend at least that much money on the marketing. It's called P and A. The middle class of movies has been slowly disappearing over the last 30 years because people are staying home and watching TV. Go to the fucking movies, bitches. Go to the movies, but also there's this there's this problem because to get people out of their homes and away from their televisions, I mean, TVs have gotten bigger, the picture quality has gotten better, and TV is very, very good now. So stories, like dramatic, kind of quiet, unfolding, slow burn stories, they happen on television now, not in movies. And so in order to get people out of their, off of their couches, movies have to get more and more and more and more expensive with bigger stars, bigger explosions, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it is really common to see a 200 or $300 million movie every year when at the time of Titanic, that was like going to put a studio out of business. And so back in the 90s, this is this is all this was all a digression to say back in the 90s Sherry Lansing was looking for kind of medium budget dramas and she heard about Titanic the industry was buzzing from Titanic and Cameron was basically a hit maker right he had his first real movie was Terminator then he made Aliens Terminator 2 and true lies. So he's like action guy, super known for action and super known for making expensive but box office worthy movies, right? Mm-hmm. So it already lit the the movie already lived at Fox though cuz Cameron had like a had like a deal with Fox that every script that he made would go through Fox and Sherry Lansing just wanted the script and it turns out that some other guy, one of Paramount's production chiefs, his name is John Goldwyn, his wife was an actress and had auditioned for a role on Titanic and slipped the script to John Goldwyn, who slipped the script to Sherry Lansing. And so Lansing was like obsessed with I think with we're it. just call everyone actors now, Aviv. Did I say actress? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Her name's Colleen Camp. She is an actor. Um, apologies. So Lansing knew that she wanted to produce the film, but also knew that it was set up with Fox, but Paramount and Fox had already made a movie together called Braveheart and Braveheart was like super successful at one best picture. And, um, and so 
she was like, let's do it another Braveheart. It was so much fun the first time, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out Fox like kind of got shafted on some of the residuals from Braveheart. And so they're like, this wasn't actually that fun for us. Mm. So <laughs> Universal was also really, really into co-producing with Fox. Who okay. had had the rights to Cameron's thing. They This happens relatively often where studios will, especially with like a big budget film, studios will split the budget. Okay. And like split the proceeds. But Universal had just made Waterworld, which was a massive, massive belly flop and also took place on water. <laughs> so I swear to God, you'll meet old studio executives who are just like movies on water. Don't make money. Movies on blah, blah, blah. And, and it's because there's like one massive flop that teaches people the wrong rule. And so the rule that we learned from Waterworld was movies that are set on water. Don't make money. Okay. And water is notoriously hard to shoot on. So there's well, yeah. like some truth. And it's to uncomfortable. That. So Universal like was like unsure about whether they wanted to co-produce with Fox. And in that hesitation, Sherry Lansing pounced and wanted to co-produce with Fox. And they decided to split the budget, which was $109 million. They wanted to split it right down the middle. So this is from BuzzFeed. Originally, the Fox chairman, Peter Chernin, even was like, this is too much money. Cameron said that he could make the... Cameron first pitched the movie as Romeo and Juliet on a boat. <laughs> and Peter Chernin said that he could do it if he could keep the budget to 110. Originally, Cameron asked for 135. So if he could keep the budget to 110... And have it ready by July 4th, 1997. And Cameron's like, yeah, sure. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and and he, has a, he has a tendency to do this too where he's just like, he says whatever he needs to say to get the green light. And then he's like, I'll do whatever the fuck I want. See also the Avatar sequels. Mm -hmm. And so the trouble began. This is from Vanity Fair. The trouble began when Lansing was given a detailed budget and saw one red flag after another. She said, quote, I hadn't produced such an elaborate movie, but I knew it was light by millions of dollars. <laughs> so she sent her head of physical production, this dude, Fred Gallo, to Mexico, where they had where Cameron had built a gigantic water tank and a multi-level set on a 24 acre piece of land. Wow. Gallo found an operation bigger than anything he'd ever seen. He found like an entire city down there. <laughs> 10,000 tons of dynamite had been used to blow a hole large enough to build the tank. And 1,500 what? construction workers were building the fake Titanic, which was almost as big as the real Titanic. Yeah, it was a life-size model, like a scale yeah, but model. It, wasn't, it right? was a scale model. Well, so it was a life-size model, but it was only a portion of the ship. Okay. So also, okay listeners i'm not sure if you're aware of this but like movies are fake and so like when they're eating off of you know the heart of the ocean wasn't a real diamond right they <laughs> use props and set decorations but this is from gallo cameron wanted real wallpaper and things like that gallo said why don't you build the sets and have them paint on the wallpaper no one will ever know and he said he wanted a special submarine and there was only one in the world and it was russian and he had to have it and they, oh they bring it in and the first day it like won't turn on it has power problems in the scene in the when jack comes to have dinner in the first class cabin they're eating real beluga caviar what 
Yeah, just like he's just like, I'm making a documentary. I can't do this without authenticity. So Gallo reported this back to Lance. And this happens all the time. This happens if you watch the movies that made us on Netflix. Um, you can see this happening on Forrest Gump, too, where they'll, the studio will send like essentially a spy to make sure that the money is being spent correctly so gallo reported this back to lansing anxiety turned to anger as the <laughs> paramount team expect suspected that they had been deceived by fox right so they agreed to this thing from fox and fox may or may not have known that cameron was just like spending all this money frivolously <laughs> and so there was like they threatened to sue each other for fraud it was like a whole fucking thing so Peter Chernin, who was the head, head of Fox, his balls were in a vice, essentially. And so he rewrote the deal terms to say that instead of a straight 50-50 split, he allowed Paramount to cap how much it would pay. Mm. And so, like, even if it was just the the original 109 split, so 50, $55 million, even if it was that, they he would allow them to, to cap their their payment which is like you know that you're a bad negotiator when you do that so paramount agreed to 65 million right so worst case scenario 130 million dollars mm -hmm. turns out the movie actually cost 210 million dollars so it mm -hmm. went a hundred and change over so this was the the world's first 200 million dollar movie and this is from sherry she says john the budget guy must have run 10 different scenarios to show how much we could make or lose. We did them until we were blue in the face, but no one had ever heard of a movie making $2 billion. Everyone said that they were going to lose money, said Cameron. No one was playing for the upside, including myself. Mm -hmm. So no one. So as you, as you mentioned, this was Cameron's folly, right? That they were going to spend all this money and bankrupt two studios. Yeah. I have a quote from Cameron saying we labored the last six months on the, on Titanic in the absolute knowledge that the studio would lose a hundred million. It was mm -hmm. a certainty. Yeah. So <laughs> Lansing visited the set. She went to Mexico and she walked through the ship. And this is when she said she was sure she had a hit. She walked through the ship and she was taken back in time. They re quote, they recreated everything and the specificity of the details right down to the period dishes blew my mind. Mm. And she was thrilled with the dailies, right? So the day, so do you know what dailies are? A little clips. Yeah. So, uh, so what you shoot in the day, the editor cuts the scenes together to just make sure we're doing the right thing or to make sure like, oh, we need an extra close up of Leo in this moment that we didn't get that we can go back and get. So dailies, but dailies used to be real fucked because you would have to overnight the film to a lab and they would overnight it back to you. Wow. So That's it was fun. like now you can watch it in basically in real time. So they were thrilled with the dailies. They were thrilled with the the set, but they were losing three out of every five days, right? They were just like the production was just taking way, way, way longer than the than they were expecting. The f director of photography was replaced. Several cast members came down sick with the flu. Kate Winslet like fractured her arm, almost drowned. And so one of the other Paramount guys, his name is Bill Mechanic, <laughs> drove down to Baja, California with like a list of cuts made to the script. So he went through the script and he's like, this scene can go, this scene can go, this scene can go just to save money. And he confronted James Cameron in the middle of the night 
It was three <laughs> or four o'clock in the morning. Jim exploded. It was he. If he had a gun, in, this is from this is from Bill Mechanic. If he had a gun in his trailer, he would have shot me. But just <laughs> if it was, if you're so fucking smart, you direct the picture. And he walked off. He stormed out of his trailer, pulled his chauffeur out of the car and sped off. And he was screaming. And I said, Bill Mechanic, shut down the shoot until he calls me. And I got in my car and drove back to L.A. So there was like a standoff for days. Oh, my goodness. In the middle of this 150 day shoot. Oh, my God. And so they eventually reached a piece but i mean cameron was a tyrant right mm. the picture was going over and over this is from sherry lansing the picture was going over and over everyone had written it off it's going to be the biggest disaster ever but some people kept believing in the film even when the the studio didn't people were genuinely frightened of james cameron this is winslet said that that he frightened her and so the crew and cast started turning against him as well Hmm. They were carrying the movie as a $55 million loss, says Peter Chernin. And that's half, right? Because $55 mm-hmm. million plus, the, plus Paramount's $55 million. And he went into Paramount and he said, you can't, you can't do this. You can't make what you're making while I'm still underwater. I'm going to get fired for this. And you're going to make money by standing on my neck. And, and the, the guy at Paramount said, no. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> meanwhile cameron was at war with both the studios and and so he his he he targeted this dude robert friedman who was a warner brothers executive who sherry lansing hired as vice chairman of of paramount and cameron despised friedman's plan for selling the movie so this is where you and i have discussed previously because I had heard the Hollywood story that Titanic was originally an action movie Mm -hmm. that they marketed it as an action movie. It tested poorly as an action movie and they recut it to make it more of a love story. That turns out not to be true, Mm -hmm. but this is where that myth comes from. So Friedman's plan for selling the the movie was as an action movie. Mm. And so he cut the first trailer as an action movie. Okay. So like the village. Yeah, and so bait and switch trailer, kind of. And so they, so this is a quote from Cameron. We got a call from Robbie Friedman saying, and I quote, "I just saw your trailer and I sh- threw up on my shoes." <laughs> this is from BuzzFeed. Titanic represented a new challenge for James Cameron because it it wasn't his first romantic movie because there are elements of romance in other of his movies, but it was the first movie that made the made the love story the primary and dramatic engine Mm -hmm. and so he he pitched titanic as romeo and juliet on a boat to the fox chairman peter chernin in 95 and peter chernin was like uh okay there isn't like uh there's no like harrier jet shootouts or car chases and cameron's like no 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 and they're like are you sure a three-hour romantic epic are you sure that's what we want there's like no little bits of Terminator in there. And he's like, no, not at all. And so <laughs> that is the, that is where this all came from is that the studio really, really wanted a James Cameron action movie. And James Cameron was never interested in doing that. Okay. So should we watch the original trailer? Seeing her coming out of the darkness, like a ghost ship still gets me every time. 
I mean, just look at it, right? Just today, a piece of paper that's been underwater for 85 years. I'll be damned. All right, you have my attention. Can you tell us who the woman in the picture is? I have no idea yes. what's going on. The woman in the picture is... I mean, I do, but if I didn't know, I wouldn't understand what was happening. Yeah, so it seems like this kind of mystery thriller, right? Today it would be worth more than the hope down Like, listen to the music, listen to... She was wearing the diamond, the night And it's all of the footage from... Oh, yeah. The, the old Rose shit. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? Also, this trailer is so long. This trailer is four and a half minutes long, <laughs> which is a two minutes longer than it should be. Cameron also decided to forego some of his salary in order to keep the movie going as it was costing more and more money. So he gave up four million dollars out of how many millions? I don't know. I think probably all of it. But he I know he got a lot for because the way directors um and writers, the way that their deals are made is that if the movie does well, they get more, they get bonuses. Okay. And so Jim got a lot of fucking bonuses. So on set, it was no picnic. Billy Zane is quoted as saying, one night toward the climax, it was 4.30 a.m. and the ship is dipping into the very chilly Pacific waters and 2,000 people are scrambling toward the stern and Cameron yells, cut! And Billy Zane uh is like watching this thing he climbs on cameron climbs onto the deck from the crane basket where the director and cinematographer sit Mm -hmm. he climbs onto the deck of the ship and he goes up to an extra who's this old lady and says you're not just running you need to go down to the sea deck because your daughter told you that she forgot something very dear to her her wedding ring and she's going down there because you gave her five minutes and she's taken 10 and you regret making that choice he gave backstory to like 150 different extras amazing i'm obsessed with this which is cool but also like extremely like like no one can live up to that right it's like kind of an impossible an impossible (laughs) dream and and he he was a he didn't heat the water yeah uh, yeah and so like kate winslet got hypothermia and then they started heating the water and um and because and she even wrote in her diary at the time like she thought that the actual cold water would give her give the part authenticity yeah he was such a tyrant that people started to hate him and hated him so much that they they dosed the 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 meal the crew meal with pcp and sent like hundreds of people to the hospital so everyone was like floating in the middle of the waters in this big water tank like high on pcp having to be hospitalized and to this day they don't know who did it it there was some kind of i read this but it's it's escaping me there's one theory that it was the the caterers because of some kind of like slight like yeah, they didn't was get like paid a, or something yeah there was like a they had switched caterers or some some pay pay thing um but this is this so but then weren't also, they all like running around the hospital like all the titanic yeah, actors <laughs> how the fuck do you fucking <laughs> out of their minds yeah ripping phone books in half <laughs> um so the piece of trivia that everyone knows about Titanic is that J- James Cameron is the one that's drawing the picture of the 17-year-old Rose. He's the hands that are drawing. He was like a storyboard artist for a while. And so he it's it's Leo's face, but James Cameron's old man hands. Yeah. But a tri- a piece of trivia that you might not know is that friend of the show Lindsay Lohan almost had a role. Lindsay Lohan. This is the thing I texted you yesterday. You're like, that's enough slices. <laughs> Lindsay so, Lohan, Cool J. 
Liz, yeah, Lizzie Lohan <laughs> Cool J herself at the time was supposed to play You Know You're My Best Girl, Cora. No. But her red hair made her look too similar to Rose. How old was she? She was eight. What? She was that yeah. young? Yeah. What, what, when they filmed, yeah. Yeah. Because they filmed in 95. So she probably was like actually like nine. But yeah. So yeah, Lindsay Lohan Cool J was supposed to be Cora. I love friend Cora. Of the show. She's so cute. Yeah, right? Love that. Love that, so journey <laughs> love that journey for her. Love that journey for her. Meanwhile... Sherry is remaining supportive of the movie. She believes in it. And she's even further convinced when she visited Cameron at his house in 97. They delayed the release, right? They're never going to make the July 4th release. And that's when Lansing called Chernin to, to discuss delaying the movie. And he was like, uh, good luck. Have fun. Um, and so the conflict spilled into the open, into like the, into the public at the Cannes Film Festival where Friedman from Fox and Mc, Bill Mechanic from Paramount almost got into a fist fight in front of people. Oh my God. Why? About the release date of the movie <laughs> and how much money it would cost to delay it. They finally agreed on a Christmas release. And so then Sherry Lansing visited the edit suite, which was in James Cameron's house in Malibu. Okay. So she goes to his house. It's around November of 97. So the movie's like not done and it's November. Oh my God. And taped to Cameron's edit. So Cameron didn't edit it himself, but he was like very instrumental. But there were like a bunch of editors on this. Mm -hmm. um, taped to the edit machine is a razor blade. And uh, there's a label that says, This is a suicide device. Use only if film sucks. What? Oh yeah. My God. And that's, that was reported by Entertainment Weekly in November of 97. So, like, no one thinks that this is going to be good. Right. Right. And so. This is from Lansing's book. Jim said, come out and I'll show you a few scenes cut together. Just a couple of scenes. It was a Sunday and I had made plans to have my I have dinner with my husband, who is director William Friedkin. William Friedkin directed The Exorcist and mm. The French Connection and knows a little bit about famous m movie co-productions that are that that flop because he made a movie called Sorcerer, which is amazing. And it was a Paramount and Universal co-production. And it was incredible. And it just so happened to come out the same weekend as Star Wars. Mm. And so it never made any money. But I have it on Blu-ray. It's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> so I, was, I had plans to have dinner with my husband, William Friedkin. Later, oh, William Friedkin was also such an asshole. So Friedkin and, and Cameron are kindred spirits. William Friedkin was such an <laughs> asshole that on the set of To Live and Die in L.A., he almost killed an actor. And it was said that he had a heart attack in his office and his secretary waited five minutes before she called 911. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's how much of a dick this guy was. Wow. Is I mean, he's still around. It was a Sunday. I had plans to have dinner with my husband, William Friedkin. Later on, John Goldwyn and I drove out to Jim Cameron's house in the early afternoon. We had a little lunch and then Jim made the room dark and showed us the first scenes and I was speechless. Cameron asked if she would like to see more. Of course. And he showed me another scene and another scene completely different and it was incredible. 
he she lost all track of time after what she believed to be an hour she said i should call bill friedkin my husband to tell him we'll be late for dinner i told jim i was meeting billy at six and jim said what are you talking about it's 8 p.m oh my gosh so the screening was a big turning point for me says james cameron because we were in a very bleak place emotionally trying to finish the movie and everyone was against us and all of a sudden we had a studio head saying somehow at some level it had all been worth it lansing's only reservation was about the song oh tell she said she said jim isn't this a little corny (laughs) and he said oh my god sherry the song's fantastic he did yeah So, interestingly, the version of My Heart Will Go On that appears at the end of the film is not the (gasps) more produced pop single that we heard earlier at the top of the hour. That demo that she laid down in one take, Mm -hmm. that's the version that they used in the film. Oh, in the film, in the final film or just in this cut? In the film. Oh, shit. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Every night in my dreams I see you That vibrato just a little too fast. Too fast. Should have skipped the copy. That is how I know you go. It, this does feel less produced. I prefer this version. Just with the like fake bass and the shaker. <laughs> yeah. Keep it simple. I think what I hate about the produced one is like that background of why does the heart go on when oh, they I sing that? I didn't even notice that. What? Oh my god. That's how it goes. <laughs> That's bad. Does she like let it off the chain though? I guess we'll find out. Yeah, please wait. Oh, yeah, this song is definitely about wanting to fuck an old lady.
really good. She's great. Her vibrato's just a little too fast, though. <laughs> So before the film was released, even though everyone loved it, there were some nervous studio executives who were scared that the movie was too long because they wanted more screenings per day, right? So the length of a movie also determines how many times you can show it to different people. Math. Math. And Cameron, they wanted cuts just for time. And Cameron was like, no. Studio heads insisted on trimming some minutes to ensure more screens per day. And Cameron said, if they wanted cut, if you want cuts, you'll have to fire me and you'll have to fucking kill me. <laughs> so how long was Titanic running time? It was like three and a half hours, right? I think it was like three hours and 19 minutes or something. Let's check. It's, it's long. It does feel like one of those old Hollywood epics where, you know, you have several different storylines all intersecting in a big disaster like it happened one night which is also about the titanic or the towering inferno and the the his uh, his other thing which like i respect and also think it's like very silly but also respect a lot is that the iceberg from the moment the iceberg hits to the moment the titanic goes underwater is in real time and so to cut anything from that section would compress the time it actually took for the titanic to sink it took about 40 minutes mm. and so he's like i'm not i'm fuck, not fucking doing that titanic running time is three hours and 14 minutes hell yeah it's long it's long and too long for young Lindsay. i'll tell you that much <laughs> okay so yeah so dion worked with producer walter afanasiev for the Crazy. pop single what did i do good there's no, there's no way that I know how to pronounce that name. Oh, I, l I listened to it on the Grammy speech so I could say it right. And then I wrote it in phonetically. Perfect. <laughs> um, for the pop single we heard at the top of the show. And Afanasiev is known for his work with Mariah Carey. He went by the nickname Baby Love in the 80s. Oh. Yeah, but he kind of seems like a big baby because he complained to Billboard about having to share the co-producer credit with Horner. Fuck off, dude. He said. Corner wrote the song. Literally. So he said, I produced and recorded from scratch the orchestra, the timpani rolls, 
the background vocals, the guitar solo, the giant drums. Then all of a sudden at the end of the process, the label instructed me to accept Horner's name next to mine as co-producer. And I went a little bit sideways on that. I had no idea why someone who has never stepped foot in the studio with me or would be my co-producer. I don't wish to speak ill of someone who's passed away, but that was a very hard pill to swallow. <laughs> this happened after he dies. Like, I don't want to, this person's dead, but fuck that guy. Fuck that dead guy. So at the 1999 Grammys, that pop version won song of the year. Hell yeah. Record of the year. Mm-hmm. Song written for visual media. Okay. Best female pop vocal performance. Okay. And it also won 1998 Golden Globe Award for the category of best original song. Did it not win the Academy Award? It did. I'm about to send you um, Madonna giving the award at the Academy. And the Oscar goes to... <laughs> what a shocker. And the Oscar goes What a shocker. That was cute, right? She yeah. Laughs. And also, also Celine like smacking herself on the chest. That's like her move. <laughs> yeah, this song was absolutely everywhere. As Madonna says, huge shocker, right? So the song was so popular that it was parodied on every comedy show ever, all the late night shows. And this is my favorite one from Mad TV. This is Michael McLeod and Jasmine Wayne Wayne singing You Are the One That I Love from the movie Sad Boat. Are you familiar with this? No. I don't think I was allowed to watch that. Alex Borstein, who's on Family Guy, and Will Sasso, who's in Drop Dead Gorgeous, and a bunch of other movies, play Jasmine Wayne Wayne and Michael McLeod, who are like the Luther Vandross and what's her name from somewhere out there. Like they just is Alex Borstein from Marvelous Miss Maisel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And okay. so, um, so this is a sketch that that was in the night there was like a series of sketches in the 90s um but the premise behind it was that they wrote the love theme to a movie called hindenburg mm-hmm. and uh and then james cameron approached them to do the love theme for his movie sad boat sad boat love it in 1998, Michael McLeod and Jasmine Wayne Wayne had a massive international hit with You Are the Love of My Life. They had it all, but now, two short years later, they're starting from scratch, struggling to find the magic again. Join us as we join them on Ease Behind the Song. You know, when James Cameron approached me to write a song for his new movie, uh, the working title at the time was Sad Boat. Sad Boat. Sad Boat. I said no. I said, said, no, James. That's right. I said no, because at that point in my career, I really wasn't interested in working without this little lady sitting next to me. I can't wait to hear it. This makes me laugh fucking every every time.
James Cameron told me that he didn't quite think the song was right for Sad Boat. Mm, he and hated it. No, he didn't right. hate it. He didn't hate it. He just thought right. that... He hated you no. for writing it. <laughs> no, 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 no that's, that's not true. He did not. He called me and he said, Jasmine, I hate that Michael. No, he didn't, he didn't say I hate him that. and the song no. sounds just like You Are the Love of My Life. These are lies. drawing board once again for michael and jasmine and you have one too right <laughs> yeah um uh yeah so as we mentioned uh the song was uh, spoofed everywhere saturday night live south park um so the one that i'm bringing to the table is anna gasteyer on saturday night live katie heron's mom Superstarter made Celine an easy target for late-night parody. Thank you, everybody in the house! And welcome to my show! I am Celine Dion, and I am the best singer in the world! See, it's funny because she's French. I think it was one of those great happy accidents <laughs> where we had tapped into something that everybody was ready to make fun of and lampoon, and, and that song had been played, you know, 17.5 million times at the, at the point that we did the sketch. My life is much better than I ever imagined it would be! For sure better than yours anyway, eh? Celine took the satire in stride. At a tour stop in New York, she invited Anna Gasteyer to perform alongside her at Madison Square Garden. Don't be jealous of me. I wasn't always this lucky. I was born in Quebec. I come from a family of 36 kids. <laughs> I have enough of a sense of humor to, to, to know what they're trying to do. And it's all right because at one point, you say to yourself, if, if, if they're doing that, you must have done something right. Please welcome my father. I mean, my husband. <laughs> I mean, see, uh, that, that, that quote from, from Celine Dion is like, someone told me I had to be a good sport about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So because the theme of this episode seems to be kooky older women. <laughs> And because we know Aviv loves a good Norma Desmond reference. I do love a good Norma Desmond reference, actually. (laughs) Here's the phantom actor, Billy Zane, (gasps) a.k.a. Cal, speaking about hearing My Heart Will Go On when he was out in public. Quote, I was at Harrods in England, descending the escalator to the... Shut up. Shut up, Billy Zane. Already with you at Harrods. (laughs) Descending the escalator to the Egyptian-themed bowls. And the song was playing quite loudly. I was being recognized on the descent. I felt like Norma Desmond coming down the staircase. Has he come out yet? <laughs> um. Any any man who who compares himself to Norma Desmond is gay. Okay. Well. This is this is this let's is not out anyone on the show. Yeah. Let's let them take you heard their, it here first, Billy Zane. <laughs> Um, do you want to really quick for the uninitiated explain who Norma Desmond is? Yes. Norma Desmond is a fake famous 
uh, silent movie actor and the main character of the movie Sunset Boulevard. She uh, has not made the transition to talkies and she lives alone in a big mansion and takes on a writer played by William Holden, who is supposed to write Salome, a new part for her. And she's just crazy. And at the end, she descends her staircase and says the famous line that you didn't know was from this movie. I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> Just picturing Billy Zane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In Norma Desmond get up. At the 1951 Oscars, Sunset Boulevard was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Mm. It won three. Screenplay, actor for Gloria Swanson. And director for Billy Wilder. So it won best screenplay, best art direction, mm. and best music scoring for a dramatic or comedy picture. Well, there you go. And uh, basically all of the actors were nominated. William Holden, Gloria Swanson, Eric Von Stroheim, Nancy Olson. It was nominated for best director, nominated for best cinematographer, nominated for editing, and nominated for best picture and lost all those yes nominated for 11 um it's a lot that is a lot in march 1998 titanic won 11 academy awards i know it and it was nominated for four i think it won it like lost three of them right yeah was one of them uh best actor (laughs) (laughs) yes leo leo went empty-handed until the revenant which i don't care for what that's conversation for another day um, how do you feel about Lord of the Rings? Hiking, I call it. I don't love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> okay, so the song is blowing up. Glenn Brun- Brunman, who, if you remember, was then the executive VP of Sony Music Soundtracks, said something that really resonated with me, with my story that I told you yeah. earlier. A little recognized accomplishment of My Heart Will Go On is how many Titanic movie tickets it sold. Long after the enormous worldwide marketing campaigns of Paramount and Fox had spent their last advertising dollars, the continuing airplay and video for My Heart Will Go On acted as a constant reminder to go see the movie again. Hell yeah. I mean, that's what music <laughs> videos are, right? They're commercials for the song, and the yeah. song is a commercial for the movie. So yeah. like, it's all, you know, it sold 11 million soundtracks for a reason. Yeah, and then I saw Titanic nine times in the movie theater. You saw Titanic nine times? Yeah. After not liking it the first time? Yeah, isn't that nuts? That is nuts. And then, so it stayed in the theaters until May, so December to May. And then when it stopped, Mm -hmm. I was like, like beside myself, like, what am I going to do with my life now? Um, Sure. So my mom bought me a bootleg copy. This is probably the most illegal thing my mom has ever done. This woman is a very, follows the rules. She got me a bootleg copy of Titanic. It was a VHS that someone was just like holding a camcorder in the movie theater. Oh, yes. And it was like blurry. And I watched it so many times. And my mom would be like, I don't know how you can watch that. Like, don't you have a headache? And I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I have a fucking headache. Um, yeah, so until the movie was released, I watched my bootleg copy. Um, in 1998, me and my friend Mallory co-hosted a little event called Leo Fest. Oh my God, Leo Fest. There's a home video of that floating around somewhere that I hope I never see. We literally made a video that we were going to send to him and we put water balloons in our bras. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, wait, well, I got 
<laughs> I got. Um, what? Do you have a question? What? Yeah. The question is why? I mean, because we didn't have boobs and we're like. So it was just to make yourself seem older more, and seem more attractive. sexier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Um, something that I think is super ironic is like how we thought we were too young for Leo and now his girlfriend's like 21. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we watched every Leo movie that we could get, um, including Total Eclipse, which had a dick shot. We were like really excited. We did full nudity for that. Um, and then, you know, Jim Carroll's Basketball Diaries, which mm-hmm, he, he sucks, sucks dick, dick for Coke. <laughs> and then there was a series of... We should do a Jim Carroll song. We oh. should do People Who Died All right. for this show. Put on the list. Yeah. Yeah, and we also had a series of um, all the episodes that Leo was on Growing Pains we had recorded. You gotta cook macaroons for 68 sweaty men with machetes. You better learn to watch your coconuts. <laughs> I used to tell my mother could get a lumber camp in Oregon. Really? Yep. When you got 68 men with chainsaws, you better learn to watch your flatbed. Wow. <laughs> Your true motivations for putting this podcast out are coming to light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was Leo Fest. It was really fun, really fun time. So, <laughs> Titanic, mu- much like, uh, much like Lindsay, <laughs> Titanic uh, had a lot of a lot of very eager viewers. It went. It made two point two billion dollars at the box office in 1997 and 8 but adjusted for inflation that is about four billion dollars today wow four four and a half billion dollars wow it it is behind just just a handful of movies of the biggest box offices of all time oh my goodness yeah well yeah behind gone with the wind star wars sound of music and et it's number five i wonder if they were all just like shitting their pants like Oh my god! Yeah, and, and <laughs> I mean, like, like they said, they had never even accounted for this movie making this much money. Right? They had no fucking idea. Yeah. So me and the rest of the world were obsessed with it. <sighs> yes, you fucking were. Holy shit! <laughs> so it made two point two billion dollars at the box office in the nineties, and then it was re-released for its whatever fifteenth year anniversary in 2013 and this is a quote from cameron saying neil degrasse tyson astrophysicist neil degrasse tyson sent me quite a snarky email saying at that time of year in that position in the atlantic in 1912 when rose is lying on that piece of driftwood and staring up at the stars that's not the star field that she would have seen and with my reputation as a perfectionist i should have known that and i should have put the right star field in so i said all right send me the right stars for the exact time and i'll put it in the movie and so when they re-released titanic in 2013 for the 15 year anniversary what they redid the stars in the sky and this is an aviv exclusive (laughs) in 2013 i right around the the time of the re-release i had dinner with one of the vfx artists for the stars in the sky for the titanic re-release and he said that they're they're still not accurate they just made something up what i was so obsessed with this and then you just ruined it I know, right? <laughs> so yeah, so so Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has made a, a small career out of being like that's not scientifically accurate in movies, <laughs> um, sent Cameron like a like a snarky email, and so when they were re- redoing it, they redid the stars. Well, weird. That's right? delightful. Another pedantic attention to detailed news. 
we have some jack theories to discuss i i was aware of one jack theory that i wanted to discuss on the show mainly because i think people would be mad at us if we didn't talk about it and then you went and found a second one a third one you we already you already knew about this one you might just be conflating them or forgetting about it okay great okay so jack is a ghost jack is a ghost why do we think jack is a ghost so in titanic jack says that he fell into a frozen lake called lake oh this is good this is the time traveler theory yes the ghost and the time traveler theory the same to me oh well they're two different ones that i was going to talk about are they really well, yeah. Okay. So, okay. But they are kind of the same. It's stupid. Okay. So, Jack is a time traveler. Because Jack, at some point, to Rose, says that he fell into the ice of Lake Wasoda, right? Yeah. We used to go ice fishing on Lake Wasoda. And ice fishing is, you know, when they, I know what ice fishing is. Oh, my God. Did you write this down or are you doing this from memory? This is right up here, babe. Oh, great. <laughs> um, and so lake wasoda is a man-made lake and didn't exist at the time of the titanic's sailing and so because james cameron is an infallible genius with a crazy attention to detail it's not possible that he made a mistake he the only logical explanation is that jack is a secret time traveler so lake wasoda was uh built in wisconsin in 1917 Mm -hmm. which is five years after the titanic sank yes and then he said, what? It's like a thousand knives going into your body. <laughs> it's like a thousand knives stepping you all over your body. You can't eat. You can't think. You I don't think he said eat. eat. <laughs> I'm just hungry. <laughs> um, no, not then what did he say? What else did he say that made him a time traveler? Oh, I have no other oh. e- evidence. Is he there said more they were going to ride the it? roller coaster until they threw up. At Coney Island? Uh, Santa Monica Pier. Oh, was that, did that exist yet? No. Come on, guys. So, yeah. So, like, right before he goes to dinner to regale their group with his heroic tale, he's out with Rose. He teaches her how to spit. Gross. He... The grossest scene. <laughs> Makes me want to throw up. <laughs> it is pretty gross. Um, yeah, and he he says they're gonna like ride horses bareback, or no, mm. like one leg on mm. either side, right? And um, uh, and ride the roller coaster at Santa Monica Pier till they throw up. That's not what he meant when he said Rose, let's go bareback. <laughs> I don't think he even said bareback. That's a, I'm reading from the script right now. <laughs> um so santa monica pier was built in 1909 or yeah that's true open to the public in september of 1909 but in february of 1916 charles loof a well-known carousel manufacturer purchased the land south of the pier to develop and introduced pleasure pier rides such as blue streak roller coaster the hippodrome and the carousel so that was 1916 sure so so not once again not evidence of a mistake we don't make those there's no such thing as a mistake jack <laughs> must be a time traveler um his haircut well sure <laughs> um but, but, his... that's, but that's like saying there were no digital instruments in 1912 how could the song sound like this true 
talkie, I guess. talkie cameras didn't exist. How can we hear <laughs> what they're saying? <laughs> I mean, they there are films in which they pay attention to the period hairstyles. Mm-hmm. This isn't one of them. This is not one of them. Um, this was Romeo and Juliet on water. Romeo plus Juliet on a boat. <laughs> um, Jack's backpack was not in line with Inwardian era style. This kind of backpack came popular in uh, 1939. Come on, guys. James Cameron's got to re-release the whole thing again, digitally change the fucking backpacks and stuff. Yeah. So the cigarettes, the cigarettes do look like modern camels. Like, I don't know what they were doing there. <laughs> yeah. Were, were they just like all rolled? I think couldn't have been machine rolled at that point. Right, but they they are they're like perfectly thick machine rolled cigarettes. Um, I think the it's it's the art department that's really fallen down on this one. Yeah, um, and then Jack didn't have any money of the time, so he had to gamble to get some. Correct. Oh, because he comes back like the Terminator, just naked with no money. Yes, <laughs> which is exactly. another James Cameron. See if this if we put this in the Terminator extended universe and we just have one scene at the very beginning where Jack shows up naked. In, Rose is Sarah Connor's mother, grandmother. Rose is Sarah Connor's grandmother. That would work. And so Jack, I mean, spoilers for the plot of Terminator. The guy from the future winds up being John Connor's father. So Jack winds up being John Connor's great grandfather, which makes sense because John Connor (laughs) was played in Terminator 2, also directed by James Cameron, by Edward Furlong. Same haircut. Same haircut. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's all coming together. It's all coming back. I was I was like mostly joking about this conspiracy theory and now I'm very <laughs> into it. Um okay, so the other theory is that I said Jack is a ghost, but it's more like Jack is like a ghost, a figment of Rose's imagination mm-hmm. like created to save her. We love this. So there if you google like blah 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 any movie ghost the whole time it's like like the sixth sense has, has broken people's brains about like yes a character exists to help another character's journey along that does not mean that they are a ghost right <laughs> it means it they means, were written into the script yeah they're for a function of the story so okay so what, what's the evidence that jack's convince me what's the evidence that jack's a ghost? okay this is um this is from glamour because i think it's dumb wait, so i'm just literally wait. going from glamour right there's now. there's literally a actual magazine article explaining why jack is a ghost yes oh my god this is written by christopher rosa the terrorists won <laughs> right it's been 20 years since titanic came out and people are still enraged about the film's ending a refresher for the three people who have never seen titanic as the ship is sinking rose played by kate winslet and jack leonardo dicaprio seek refuge on a wooden door that can fit only one person in an act of true love jack puts rose on it and sacrifices himself it's cinematic emotional and also very polarizing several people have attempted to prove jack could have easily fit on the door with rose the film's director james cameron denies this but the debate rages on we hear the people's battle cry loud and clear jack should have lived Okay, so yada, 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 they both could have fit on the door. Once again, I think this is an art department problem because in the script, in the movie, Jack tries to get on the door with Rose and they almost capsize and he's like, yeah, yeah, fuck it. So like, 
I think it's the art department's fault. The door is just like a little too big, probably so they could put a camera on it. Yeah. And like it's it's a movie guys <laughs> it's a very upsetting movie <laughs> so yes but like he's not a physicist like what the fuck does he know like like he tries to get on it it almost tips he's like better safe than sorry i'm a time traveler anyway <laughs> yeah okay so yeah blah 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 jack should have lived unless jack unless. never actually existed as this bonkers reddit theory suggests buzzfeed recently resurfaced this years old hypothesis which claims jack was just a figment of rose's imagination so this is glamour via buzzfeed via reddit yeah <laughs> great great sourcing so great good sourcing the reddit user suggests rose was so miserable aboard the titanic her fiance cal Billy Zane mm-hmm. is the actual worst that she created Jack as an escape. And because Jack is the literal antithesis of Cal, this sort of makes sense. It gets weirder. The Redditor writes, it is no coincidence Jack and Rose's first encounter happens when can she's I, about to jump off the boat. Can I pause what? you? Can I pause you right now? It's uh-huh. no coincidence that Jack and Rose's first meeting happens when she's about to jump off the boat because it's a movie and movies are written by people. yes that's why it's not a coincidence because someone wrote the movie right but this redditor uh is thinking about it way too much and thinks that jack appears quite literally to save rose well yeah that is Mm -hmm. why he was written in yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) and help her reclaim her life it's almost as if he's her guardian angel like clarence Clarence. it's a wonderful life yeah she runs through the streets of new york at the end merry christmas the old building and loan This could explain why Jack's language in the film is so encouraging and empathetic. His sole purpose is to help Rose find the coincidence to live fully on her own terms. If you don't break free, you're going to die, he says to Rose at one point. And that's not the line. (laughs) What is the line? They've got you trapped, Rose, and you're going to die if you don't break free. Maybe not right away because you're strong, but sooner or later, that fire that I love about you, that fire is going to burn out. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) listeners i'm quite moved right now so that's the article that was the whole thing they ended it on a false quote (laughs) okay so here's the thing here's here's my here's my mind-blowing conspiracy theory jack and rose and cal are all figments of james cameron's imagination what's my evidence they're in a movie (laughs) who wrote the movie james cameron james cameron um, there was another Jack theory that he was Jay Gatsby. Because he's Jay Gatsby but. in another movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. People um, have way too much time on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, this brings me to a couple weeks ago when Aviv sent me a TikTok. So Aviv sent me a TikTok about a, conspiracy, a Titanic conspiracy theory, of which there are many. There are books filled with them. One is called Conspiracies at Sea. And it's filled, its pages are filled with Titanic conspiracies. I sent this because I know how much you love Titanic, not because I thought we were going to do this for an episode. Oh, right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But this one I hadn't seen before or heard about it. And it really got my juices flowing for my Titanic heart on. So (laughs) let's watch 
What if I told you the Titanic never sank? What? So the owner of the boat, JP Morgan, actually had two boats. He had the Titanic and he had the Olympic. And the Olympic was a little bit older and a little bit more run down. And it was also in some accidents. Okay. So the theory is that JP Morgan sank the boat on purpose because he knew he would get a lot of money. What? He did it for the insurance money, right? But why sink the newly built Titanic when you could scratch off the paint, swap the names, and sink the Olympic instead? He just painted the word Titanic over the Olympic? It gets worse. Guess who was on that boat? Who? I know there's a lot of people on the boat. All of JP Morgan's business competitors. What? And not one of them <gasps> made it out. Oh my god. So guess who wasn't on the boat? Who? JP Morgan. Was he supposed to be? He canceled minutes before it left. Because he knew it was going to sink. And there was a guy named James Fenton, right, who survived and worked on the boat. And on his deathbed, his last words were, the Titanic never sank. It was the Olympic. Wait, what? And he said that if he said anything, something bad would happen to him. So what you're trying to say is the movie Titanic is actually called the Olympic. Exactly. Okay. I didn't fact check any of this mm. before sending it to you. But I did. So next week on Lyrics for no! Lunch, I will regale the group with my heroic tale of researching Titanic conspiracy theories. The podcast will go on. <laughs> um, okay. So how are we going to go out this week? In honor of these two lovebirds, lovers, Jack and Rose, uh -huh. one, one may be real, one may not be. They're, neither of them are real. It's a movie. I have a Tay-Tay song. No, what? Wait, we're so close to the end without talking about Taylor Swift. <laughs> Leave the Christmas lights up till January. Great. Isn't this literally everyone does that? This is our place. <laughs> we make rules. But maybe this is a good one to go out on. And there's a dazzling <laughs> In that I've lost the will to live. Spit my coffee in my cup because of you. Have I known you 20 seconds or 20 years? Are you a ghost? Are you a time traveler? Sorry, the song is not good. Stick with it. It's gonna get worse. Is it? <laughs> right now. Wow, you're right, it did get worse. Pictures of when we were young. So where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? People can find us on Instagram at Lyrics for Lunch. We're also on Twitter with the same handle. You can send us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Leave us a rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. The podcast app is the best way to get your, get your reviews seen. Five stars would be nice. Takes a lot of energy to deal with Lindsay at this energy level. So, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. She's like this all the time. And tune in next week when we finish, when we conclude our Titanic conspiracy theory episode where Lindsay tells me Titanic never actually sang. Cacao! Until next week, I'm Steve Rubenstein. <laughs> I'm Lindsay Ducker. Saying cacao. <laughs> My heart will go on. Share the doors. Share the doors. Share those doors. Story has always been you.
go down with the Titanic. It's true for you. Wow. What what a <laughs> what a disappointing conclusion to this. Okay, so you didn't like it, which is pretty, pretty... And I made myself so strong again somehow. This isn't even the song that we're doing today. <laughs> this better not be in the fucking episode. It's absolutely. This is, only, this is the only thing that's going to be in the podcast. <laughs> um.